You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. This morning we're going to take a uh, pretty large chunk of the letter, much larger than what we normally take. We're going to begin reading with chapter 2, verse 1 of Romans, and we're going to read clear through chapter 3 and verse 20. Uh, I was teasing everybody Wednesday night at the Bible study. This is a probably, it's only going to take a, probably about five or six hours to get through this. So um, everybody laughed, and please, you're allowed to laugh. You might even laugh real loud for the tape, you know. Um, no, it's, it might be just a little bit longer than normal, but uh, uh, I think you'll see the benefit of doing this as we go along. Romans chapter 2, verse 1 through chapter 3, verse 20. I don't hear any pages rattling, so I assume everyone's found the place. Now, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, 
your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if Through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory. Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just? What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning, Father, as we contemplate uh, these words. Some are clearer than others, Father. But we do come before you as those who are dependent even on the clear passages that alone those that are that are more dense and, and a little more difficult. Father, we ask you would teach us and that you would be pleased, Father, to enable us to grow in Christ Jesus as we look to these words, Father. Speak to our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, it's really a joy to be back this morning. It really truly is, and it's equally a joy to be uh, in your company And I I could say that for all all kinds of reasons, but one reason that I had in mind uh, for saying that this morning is that is because there's a zeal for the gospel here. Um, There truly is a zeal for the gospel. You know, I love your stories when you sometimes after the service or or after a Wednesday night, you come to me and you say, you know, I've been talking to this uh, woman, you know, and it's it's really exciting. I've been sharing this and been sharing that. And and I love those stories. uh, what, are, what are you trying to do? You're trying to share the gospel with the people that are around you. And you truly have a zeal to want people to come to, to know and come to uh, experience what you've experienced by God's grace. And I love it. And I think we are in one accord here. We want to see God change hearts, don't we? I mean, we want to see God open up eyes and ears. 
Uh, it's an exciting thing to watch that happen. And we want God to do for others what he's done for us. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons why so many of you were so excited about studying Romans. You know, maybe as we study Romans, we'll get a little better at this, you know. I, that is the idea, right? Um, well, we, we will get better at this as we study Romans. Uh, that is for sure. Now, you'll also notice, and I've already said, that we're taking a really unusually long section of Paul's letter. Um, there's a lot of reasons for this. Um, we got so much to cover, I'm not going to go into all those reasons. I think they'll become clear as we go. But I want to share one reason um, to try to bring a little focus to this. Uh, one of the reasons that, uh, that um, we're taking such a long passage this morning is that um, there's a component that is here in Romans. And I've shared this with many of you on one-on-one, and um, I've shared it a little bit at, at Bible study, I think. But there's a, a component that Paul is spending a lot of time on that is hauntingly missing from many of our attempts to share the gospel with other people. There's a crucial component. I mean, and I I think that um, uh, once we begin to see it, I I think if you're, if you're, uh, maybe I shouldn't speak for all of you, but I can speak for myself, that many times as I've struggled to share the gospel with people, I've never gone here. I never went here. Um, uh, I, I went in all kinds of other directions. So what am I talking about? Well, the component that I'm talking about, you'll find in verse 16 of chapter 2 of our reading. If you look there with me, you see where it says that Paul speaks of a day. Does everybody see that? Paul speaks of a day. When according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What, what's going on here? In fact, I want to use verse 16 actually as our springboard, if you will, to kind of view this whole big passage. We're not going to be able to go into every verse and the detail and depth that you're accustomed to hearing. Um, but I think that I think this might be a real benefit to us. Um, And if I might slip in another reason for doing this, if we do go into those verses with the detail that you're accustomed to me with, we're going to be on the subject of judgment for a really long time. And I don't think that's healthy for us. I really don't. Um, I think we need some balance here. So I want to try to cover this really with one message. But using verse 16 as our springboard, Paul speaks of a day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So you can see from there that Paul is speaking of a coming day, right? He's speaking of a coming day when God will judge our secrets. Now, notice that the announcement of this day is part of the gospel. Do you see that? It's according to my gospel. Now, if we can think back all the way to chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse we started on, Um, there um, Paul makes it really clear that his gospel is God's gospel, doesn't he? If not, you can make a note and look at it later this afternoon, but you'll see there that 
that Paul's gospel is one and the same as God's gospel. So all of this to say is we could say that the announcement of this coming day is part of God's gospel. It's part of God's good news. The announcement of this coming day. Now the Jewish audience that's hearing Paul would have understood this well. The prophets, they spoke abundantly about it. One famous example would be Malachi 4.1, which reads, quote, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all of the arrogant and all evildoers will stubble. Now, when we read verses like this, there's always somebody who may think to themselves, well, that sounds like a bunch of Old Testament stuff, you know. That's Old Testament stuff. That's not New Testament stuff. And quite frankly, when I hear objections like that, I'll just be honest. What I'm actually thinking, I don't say it, but what I'm actually thinking is, have you ever heard of the book of Revelation? I mean, what's going on there? Um, Have you read the book of Revelation? Uh, and w- w- what's been your conclusion if you have? Okay, well, let's, let's put that aside. Let's think about the Gospel of Matthew. Have we read the Gospel of Matthew? Um, we're going to find this stuff all over the Gospel. But we're going to find all these Old Testament connections throughout the New Testament. Um, now, Throughout the New Testament, we find numerous examples where the gospel is being shared, and, and this coming day of judgment is part of the presentation. For example, in Acts 17, which we read earlier, there Paul is speaking the Areopagus to the Athenian philosophers. Verse 29, he says, We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. Now, what's Paul doing? He's sharing the gospel with the Athenians, okay? He says, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now listen to what he says in verse 31. He says, because he has fixed a day. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Uh, and of course, the judge here is uh, the returning judge is Christ Jesus, correct? Now, we have another example. If you go to Acts 24, when Paul's in custody before Felix, he tells us as he reasons with Felix, he tells Felix about the, the coming judgment. It's one of the things that Paul mentions to Felix. And in fact, interestingly enough, if you look at that passage later this afternoon, you'll see that as soon as Felix hears about this coming judgment, that's when he gets kind of, uh, you know, okay, Paul, that's enough about this gospel stuff. Um, I'll come back to you later. It's, it's kind of a conversation stopper, you know. Um, another example would be John the Baptist who announces, he announces a, a, a coming day when many of the Pharisees and Sadducees are coming to him. In Matthew chapter 3, uh, what does, Paul, or what does the, John the Baptist say to them? He says, quote, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So we have another announcement. And then Jesus in Matthew 16, verse 27, he spoke of this when he said, quote, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Again, Christ is the judge. Now, it's, it should be really no mystery to us as to why we'd want to skip this coming day of judgment. Perhaps some of us will think, well, that's kind of an old-fashioned thing, you know, uh, we kind of sound like maybe one of those old fire and brimstone guys, and we don't want to really sound like one of those old fire and brimstone guys. And and uh, sometimes when we think of fire and brimstone guys, I, 
I hope you don't want to sound like that. You know, I don't want to sound like that. And let me flesh out what I mean by that. What I mean by that is when you've got somebody just proclaiming hellfire with delight in their eyes, and they, they almost seem like they're looking forward to it happening to people, uh, that, is, that is really out of touch with the New Testament. When Jesus looks upon the city of Jerusalem, does he look at it like, oh, I just can't wait to come back here and exercise judgment upon you? No, as he looks upon the city of Jerusalem, as he's descending down to the Mount of Olives, and he looks upon the city, he weeps, doesn't he? The Son of God weeps. So we don't ever want to sound like that. Uh, and um, uh, I don't want to be misunderstood by anyone listening. I don't, I don't think any of you would misunderstand me, but this is being recorded. And people who have no idea who I am are listening. And I want to be clear that that's not the kind of thing we're talking about here. But there's another reason why really I think we skip this is because it's so dreadfully uncomfortable to contemplate, isn't it? I mean, let's think about it. There's this coming day. And what's going to happen on this coming day? Uh, our thoughts, our thought life, the words that have come out of our mouths, the deeds that we have done, things that we wouldn't want anyone to know about, are all going to be brought right before the very judgment bar of Almighty God. Now, I can't think of too many subjects that are more uncomfortable than that. Um, and the, the fear, the guilt, the shame, the embarrassment, it's so dreadful that I think one of our mechanisms for dealing with it is putting it so far back behind in our consciousnesses that we simply put, we bury it back there so that we can kind of function as if it isn't going to happen at all. That's what we do as believe, unbelievers, isn't it? We go around really in all intensive purposes acting like that day's never going to come. Uh, we, we just bury it back there. We say to ourselves things like this. I mean, this judgment is for the terrorists. You know, this judgment is for those guys. You know, those guys that they get in trucks and they, they drive through crowds of people. It's for those guys, you know. Well, um, in our text this morning, Paul's making it really clear that this kind of thinking is dangerous. And, and um, this is a dreadful announcement, but we can't afford to shy away from it. I mean, if, when we do, we actually pull the gospel. We pull the rug right out from and from an under the gospel. And I think if we're, oftentimes, um, many of the gospel presentations that take place today, um, instead, of, instead of presenting the gospel as deliverance from this coming day, it's a gospel that's presented as deliverance from unhappiness. You know what you you know you need delivered from your unhappiness. You know, you know you're 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 unhappy, and I see you're unhappy, and and here you can you can be happy, and this is how you can you can be happy, and uh, um, you you don't seem to have any self esteem, and I see you you have real low self esteem, and here's how you can here's how you can have self esteem, and and um, you don't seem to have any purpose, you know. So here here's how you can have purpose, and there's this um, purpose thing that you can have here, and. And, um, you know, your life seems to be empty. And, you know, quite frankly, I mean, a lot of times you'll, you'll hear those kinds of presentations and say, oh, does it feel empty inside? And I think a lot of our neighbors are going to say, no, not really. You know, I mean, I, I got a nice house. I got a I got a beautiful wife and beautiful children. And um, we got a lawnmower and we got some toys all over the place. And no, actually, I'm having a really good time. But thank you very much. The, the Apostle Paul 
in essence, in these verses that we're looking at, is saying to us, what in the world are you doing? What in the world are you guys doing? He's saying, no, no, no. He's saying, you got like big time problems. You got all these thoughts that you've had. And you've got all these words that you've spoken. And you've got all these actions that you've done. And, and they're all being tallied up. And they're in store. And there's a trial that's coming on this day. And uh, I mean, you have such a big problem that once you discover this problem, you're not really going to be concerned about lack of purpose or emptiness. That's what Paul is saying to us. And let me show you. Look at verse. Look at chapter two, verses six to eleven. If you look there, you'll see Paul's. He's he's developing this. He says. Uh, um, Namely, that God will render to each one according to his works. Do you see that in Romans chapter two, verse six? God will render to each one according to his works. And if you look down to verses eight and nine, Paul says, for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there'll be wrath and fury. There'll be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Now, again, this is not just the real bad terrorist stuff here that Paul's talking about. It's, it's, not, it's not just the real heinous sins of our society that Paul's talking about. Listen, we need to be clear here. The common everyday sin of unbelief is in view here. I can remember thinking that this was just a philosophical thing. When I first came to faith and we had the music store, I was thinking, this is just a philosophical thing really if we could just if we could just educate people and just share with them you know uh, he you know here here's here's Jesus and this is what he's about and this is what he did and and etc 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 and and I didn't realize that this is a moral issue I thought unbelief was kind of like okay some people believe in this some people believe in that and it's just a matter of philosophical persuasion no that's not what's going on here unbelief is actually a moral issue and it really gets under God's skin. Unbelief. Unbelief, actually, as I've said earlier, unbelief is calling God a liar. So a lot of times when we look at like verses eight and nine, we think that's the real bad stuff that doesn't that doesn't pertain to us. Now, before we move on, I, I want to take a few moments and point out verses seven and verse 10 to you. If you look there to those, Paul says to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immorality I'm sorry, immortality. Uh, he will give eternal life, glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. Uh, you, you read those verses and, and it kind of raises an eyebrow, doesn't it? I mean, if you're engaged in it, if you're thinking it through. What is, what is Paul saying here? Is he saying that, okay, verses 8 and 9, if we're self-seeking, we don't obey the truth, we obey unrighteousness, we live for ourselves, we live for the things of this world, blah, 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 blah. Okay, there's going to be wrath, tribulation, and fury. But if by patience and well-doing, we seek for glory and honor and immortality, he's going to give eternal life to us. What's Paul saying? Is Paul saying that, that if we just shape up, we can, we can get into heaven? Is that what he's saying? It seems like that's what he's saying there, doesn't it? Is, is he saying that... Uh, is he saying, okay, um, 
uh, if we're patient and well-doing and we seek for glory and honor and immor immortality, then we're going to receive eternal life. Is that what he's saying? If that's what he's saying, then he's contradicting what he's saying in Romans 3 and verse 20. If you look at the very end there, look, look at Romans 3 and verse 20. There he says, by works of, of a law, no human being will, will be justified. And this has caused a lot of people to, to say, wait a second, Paul's, Paul's contradicting himself here. In one place, he's saying, listen, if, if, we'll, if we'll get on with it and start living for God's glory, then we're good to go. And in another place, he says, listen, there, there's nothing, you know, by, uh, by works of the law, no one will be justified. Well, uh, these verses, they've caused a lot of people problems, but they don't need to cause us any problems. You, you remember in, in biblical interpretation, there, there are three things that are important, aren't there? What are they? Yeah. And what is the context here? The context here is not salvation. The overall context here is judgment, isn't it? You know, see, it's kind of why I want to take this whole thing at one big swatch here. The, the overall context, this is one of the reasons, another one of the reasons why I wanted to do this. The, the context here is, is judgment, uh, not salvation. And there's another rule of interpretation that is important. And it goes like this. We must interpret Scripture under the control and scrutiny of Scripture. Let me put it another way. Whatever interpretation that we have on a particular verse needs to be able to stand up under the scrutiny and control of the rest of the verses. That's really important. It's really important. Okay, there's no way that we can earn our salvation. Why? Paul makes this clear. The New Testament makes this abundantly clear. The Old Testament makes it abundantly clear. Isn't that the Old Testament? Isn't that the story over and over again? People trying to make it on their own and failing. Isn't that the cycle that we see over and over and over again throughout the entire Old Testament? In the New Testament, Paul makes it clear. Romans 3.20, Romans 3.28, Galatians 2.16, Galatians 2.19, Galatians 3.10-13, Galatians 5.4, just to name a few passages where we see this is impossible. Uh, so we, we have to do away with any notion that that's what Paul is saying in verses 7 and 10 here. That has to be out. Any kind of work, salvation, interpretation is out. So instead, we need to understand verses 7 to 10 as hypothetical. Hypothetically speaking, if we could be born into this life without sin and we could function in this way, well, then sure, we would receive eternal life. And Jesus is proof of that because that's what Jesus did, isn't it? But the problem is we're incapable of doing it. And that is what Paul's point is here. And this fits in with the context. And I'll allow you to be the judge. I think this fits in with the context. And what I want to do now is, in the few minutes we have left, is to break this down into, into pieces here. Uh, what we see here is that there's a problem. And uh, without Christ, we have a tendency to think that this judgment uh, simply awaits the other guy. And we devise all kinds of mechanisms to justify ourselves that this judgment doesn't await us. It awaits uh, the other guy. And the burden of these passages, we only read from chapter 2, verse 1 through chapter 320. But the, passage that, the passages that we're really looking at this morning start all the way back in chapter 1, verse 18. I just, for the sake of brevity, didn't go all the way back there. 
But in terms of your mind, as you're thinking through Romans, think of this as all one section, Romans 1.18, all the way through 3 and verse 20. This is all one section. If we go back just for a few moments, I don't want to spend much time there, but back in verse 18 of chapter 1 and following, Paul tells us that all humanity has rebelled against God. And you'll recall from earlier messages that we saw that God's present wrath is upon uh, uh, you, unbelieving humanity. And we're told that unbelieving humanity has been given over to their sins. If you look up, look at verse 24, they're given up to the lust of their hearts. Verse 26, to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, to a debased mind. And and uh, there's, uh, 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 if you look down to verse 32, I mean, there's no argument here that this kind of stuff warrants judgment. If you look at verse 32, we know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to, to, to die. In other words, everyone knows that this stuff is wretched and deserving of, of judgment. But we're given over to it. And you'll recall, how do we know when we're given over to something? You're given over to something when you can do it freely without any pang of, uh, without your conscience bothering you. You know, how do we know if we're given up to something? Well, when you can do something that you know that's wrong and really do it calmly without it bothering you, well, then you've been given over to it. You've been given over to it. And to make matters worse, look at verse 32. We know this stuff is wrong, but we do it anyway and give approval to those who do it with us. Do you see that? Now I'm speaking of unbelieving humanity here. And I hardly need to show that this is going on everywhere around us. But if we might move on to chapter 2, Paul, he's a skillful evangelist. I mean, he knows from experience that we're bent on believing that this doesn't apply to us. I mean, we're, we're bent on reading this stuff and saying, you know, that's, that's the other guy. This doesn't, this doesn't, uh, this doesn't pertain to us. Um, and he knows about that, that there will be folks that hear about this and they'll say in their hearts, well, they deserve whatever's got, whatever they got coming to them. You know, they'll deserve whatever they got coming to him. Um, the Apostle Paul knows that we're constantly looking at the speck of dust and we're overlooking the speck of dust that's, uh, we're, uh, that's in our brother's eye while we're oblivious to the law that's in our own. You know, how often we're guilty about this. What I'm trying to say is, you know, there's a moralist that lurks in our hearts. We watch the news and we see how people have really fouled up and, and uh, we couldn't imagine ourselves doing such a thing, could we? Couldn't, we'd never do that, would we? Possibly not. Um, but do we think we're incapable of it? I mean, we can hear the moralist saying those who practice such things, they deserve judgment, they deserve to die. But all is well with us. Thank goodness for that. Surely we can stand in the, the day of judgment. Uh, if not, we wouldn't be so quick to judge, would we? Um, if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, we have no excuse, every one of us who judges. For in passing judgment on another, we condemn ourselves because we, we the judge, practice the very same things. And again, I think we can hear Jesus saying, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Um, so there's a day coming and left to ourselves. We cannot stand in it. If we move down to chapter 2 and verse 12 to 16, Paul moves on to another group. And 
uh, as I break these things down into groups, let me say there's overlap here. There's certainly overlap. Uh, we're com complicated people. We can't really be broken into nice little neat categories. There's overlap all over the place. But that having been said, look at verses 14 and 15. Paul tells us, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now, I was earlier this week, I was thinking, how, how am I going to develop that passage in taking such a big piece at one time? I want to do it quickly. And I think here's a good way to do it is to try to just bring it into, into contemporary language. You know, a common objection to Christianity goes like this. Okay, if you, what you're saying is the only way that we can escape this coming day of wrath is in Christ Jesus. What about all of those who have never heard of Jesus? Has anybody ever heard that objection? Has anybody ever been asked that objection? If you get busy and you share your faith, someone's going to ask you that objection. It's a common objection. Well, the, the, surely, I mean, if, if, if Jesus is the only way out of this mess, surely those who have never heard of Jesus have an excuse, don't they? I mean, surely they can plead ignorance, can't they? Can't they say, you know, hey, listen, Lord, I, um, I, I never heard of Jesus. No one ever told me about Jesus. Surely they can plead ignorance. Well, Paul says no. Paul says no. Now, we're all thinking that three-year-old, that question that three-year-olds are famous for. Why? Why? Well, listen to what the Apostle Paul is saying. In essence, what he's saying here is that, that each one of us has been given a conscience. And we know right from wrong. And this is what Paul is saying when he says that they are a law to themselves. The law is written on their hearts. We have been given a conscience. And, you know, the sociologists will confirm this, you know. They, they, they'll say, you know, you can go over to these people groups. You can, go, uh, you can go down in the jungle and you can find people who've never been exposed to uh, the scriptures. And as you get to know these folks, you'll see that they have this sense of right and wrong. It's, it's, it's certainly not going to be a perfect sense of right and wrong, but there is this sense of right and wrong. It's not perfect, but it works well enough that they're without an excuse. So the, the answer is no. At the day of judgment, no human being will be able to plead ignorance because God has given each of us a conscience and he has instilled a sense of right and wrong into each one of our hearts. This is part and parcel of being created in the image of God. But the problem is we have done things that we know are wrong. We know these things are wrong, and we went ahead and did them anyway. Uh, so no one is going to be able to attempt to plead ignorance. Uh, they simply cannot stand. Um, so those who don't have their Bibles can't plead ignorance. What about those who do have their Bibles? If you look, if you look with me to verse 17, look at Paul's next argument. He says, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're an instructed from the law, and if you skip down to verse 23, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Uh, here, here we see the exact opposite, don't we? You know, the first group are those who don't have a Bible. They don't have a Bible. Okay, Lord, I didn't have a Bible. You know, it's, I'm, I, you know I, I didn't have a Bible. That's not going to be an excuse. But what about those who have a Bible? 
are are they are they going to be able to stand uh, not without Christ? Why? Uh, because uh, they're they're who, who's able to who's able to follow each one of these precepts perfectly? Nobody. You know these verses here are especially concerning to me because. You know, Paul's talking about if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, and he later says, you know, if you look down to verse 21, he says, you, you then who teach others. Uh-oh. You then who teach others. You know, as a preacher, I, you know, I, I certainly approve of, of the truth of God's word. I love God's word. And right now I'm trying to teach it to the best of my ability, and I'll leave you to be the judge of how I'm doing. But... Um, I, I left to myself, I couldn't possibly follow this. It really makes me, a, in one respect, it could make me a really big hypocrite, couldn't it? I mean, Sunday after Sunday, you, you preach the ideals of the Word of God, and this is what we're supposed to be doing, and then you follow me around, and you're going to find it that, first of all, left to myself, I'm not going to do any better at it than any of you. But even in Christ Jesus, after we're delivered from the dominion of sin, how well are we doing at this then? I got to tell you, I spend a lot of time on my knees in repentance. And I've shared that with many of you, and I will continue to share it with you. And I share it with you for several reasons. It's so that on, uh, you know, when the night comes that you can't sleep, at least you know you have some company in me. As part of being your pastor, uh, Overcoming the flesh, uh, overcoming the world, overcoming the evil one is not something we could even begin to do uh, on our own. But even as we begin to walk with Christ, some of us have patterns of sin that have been in our lives for many, many years. And they don't go away overnight, do they? So, yes, and this, of course, applies more than just to preachers. It, it, this applies to everyone who claims to be a believer. If you look at verse 21, you then who teach others, this would apply to someone at the water cooler simply trying to share the faith. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? When you preach against stealing, do you steal? Some of them may say, well, you know, I've never stolen anything. Really? There isn't a person in this room who's not a thief. And some would say, Rick, that's not very nice. I know it's not very nice, but it's true. I say, well, then you back that up. How can you say I'm a thief? Have you ever stolen praise that belonged to God and taken it for yourself? I have. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? When you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Has anyone ever looked at the opposite sex the wrong way and then contemplated in their heart things they shouldn't have contemplated? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Do we have anything that's more important in our lives than God? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law, for it is written the name of God. This is the painful part. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. If someone were to follow us around, would we bring dishonor to God? Sometimes the answer is yes, isn't it? Left to ourselves, no one can stand the coming day. There's a day coming. The moralist can't do it. The person without their Bible can't do it. 
the person with their Bible who's trying to do it in their own strength can't do it. And have one more, we have one more group in mind here. If I can just hold your attention for a few more minutes. Paul has one more group in mind, and that's those who would trust in their circumcision. If you look at verse 25, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Now, again, I'm thinking, what do we do with this? We could spend a lot of time with this. I don't think we have to spend a lot of time with this. I think I can show you what this is all about very quickly. Uh, A number of years ago, I went to the hospital to visit an elderly woman. And while I was there, I read a short passage of Scripture with her. And I prayed for her. And this caught the attention of another elderly woman who was sharing the hospital room with her. So I ended up going over, and I delight in that. I love that. I I ended up going over and spending a few minutes talking with her. And I began to ask her about her faith. And she assured me that she was okay. And I said, well, you know, could you tell me a little bit about, about your faith? And she kept assuring me she was okay. She had been confirmed as a Lutheran when she was a very young teenager. And she made it clear that she had not attended church all these years and she had very little to show, at least in our conversation, that she had really surrendered her heart and life to Christ. She kept pointing to this confirmation. Uh, What she seemed to be trusting is the fact that she had been confirmed as a teenager. And again, I don't know her heart, but I can say this, her confirmation alone is not going to enable her to stand in the day any more than your baptism is going to enable you to stand in the day. Or circumcision. You see, if it was that simple, we could solve this problem. All we'd have to do is run around and baptize everyone and we'd be fine. We'd be good to go. I mean, we managed to get vaccines out to everyone. Why couldn't we baptize everyone? This doesn't work that way. So you see the thrust of the... Paul's argument here, there's a day coming when the secrets of our hearts are going to be brought to bear and left to ourselves. We're not going to be able to stand. No, not not the moralists, not the one who doesn't have a Bible, not the one who does have a Bible, but is trying to trust in their abilities to follow the Bible, nor the one who's, nor the preacher, nor the one who's been circumcised or baptized or confirmed. No, Paul's burden here is to convince us all that no human being can stand. If you look at his conclusion, verse 10 of chapter 3, what's he say there? No one is righteous. No, not one. You probably know these verses better than you know the other verses. But look at it. Verse 11, 12, 13. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps under the lips. Boy, Paul, you're not being very nice here. You're not being very nice at all. Their, fa- their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. I would imagine the Apostle Paul had tears in his eyes when he wrote these words. I don't know that, but I can guess. I'm going to speculate that he did. If you look at verse 19, the whole world is accountable to God. You know, if people believed this, they would flee to Christ in droves. They would flee to Christ in droves. They'd be on their knees in repentance, pleading for forgiveness. If they refused, at least, if they refused, at least they would know why they should be. At least they would understand the need for the gospel and they would understand the gravity of the situation. 
But because of this component is missing from our presentations, they don't know. And they don't understand. And they don't understand because we tell them that the gospel is about delivering them from unhappiness. The gospel is about raising their self-esteem. The gospel is about putting purpose in their life. These are all effects of the gospel. Sure, you get, I got a lot of purpose in my life. I mean, one of my purposes is coming here and sharing all this with you. But I needed the gospel because I can't stand on the day that's coming. And we've got to start telling people about this day, this dreadful day. We should be telling them that they're in big trouble and only Christ can save. We should be telling them that there's a day coming when they'll have to give an account. We should be telling them that there's no curve. Okay, I understand the day's coming, but hey, God knows we're only human. He's going to give us a curve. No, He's not going to give you a curve. He's giving you a Savior. It's way better than a curve. He's given us a Savior. There will be no curve because there's no need for a curve because we have a Savior. Do you want a curve? I've offered you a savior and you want a curve. I've offered you a savior and you've called him a liar. You've called him a deceiver. And now you want a curve? See, we've got to figure out ways to tell people this. And in love, it has to be in love. It has to be with the tears. Or you're going to sound like one of those guys you don't want to sound like. That's why I say we've got to learn how to do this. We only have one recourse, and that is, that is Christ Jesus. We, there is no other recourse. You know, this whole idea of, of Protestant churches getting together and inviting, uh, inviting people from other faiths uh, to, to pray in the name of unanimity. You know, I mean, what is up with all of that? Come on. I mean, we want to love all people and everything, but we've got to stand our ground on this. There is only one Savior. There's only one Savior. And we've got to find ways to communicate this Crucial component of the gospel. I want to leave on a positive note. God is still in the business of saving souls. I'm not a gambling person at all. I don't gamble at all. Never have. I'm not a gambling person, but I will tell you this. If we would get busy and share this stuff, do you know what will happen? Do you know what's going to happen? People are going to come to faith. That's what will happen. That's, that's what we, see, we're back where we started, aren't we? It's a joy to be here. Why is it a joy to be here? It's because you have a zeal for the gospel. But I think there's a component missing from our gospel. And I think it's this. But just ask yourself, don't raise your hand or anything. Just ask yourself, how much time have you spent with people talking about this day that's coming? God's still in the business of saving souls. God, the gospel is no less powerful now than it was in the first century. And we get behind us. He's going to do the work. God will do the work of salvation. I'm not saying, I don't know how many people will come to faith, but I can almost, I, I think I can promise you with, with certainty that if we get on about this and we get serious about this, that God will, God will save people. As I look around at some of you, I mean, you know, I've, I've I've had the privilege of, uh, some are missing here this morning, but I've had the privilege of leading a few of you to Christ. God saves souls when we get behind the gospel. 
And when we start out the way the Apostle Paul starts out, there's no ambiguity as to why we need it, is there? There's no confusion as to why we need it. Okay, thanks for this long message. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we thank you and praise you that you've loved us so much that you've given us these words. In some sense, this is a hard message to listen to because in one sense, we, we may think we know all this stuff. And academically, I think we do know much of it, probably most of it. But Father, I think in terms of practicing it, Father, I think we have a long ways to go and it's needful that we, that we, that we spend time on it. And Father, as we, as we think about our, our talks, some of our talks, and uh, Father, I know as I think about some of my talks, Father, um, there, there really is a component that is missing. And uh, Father, we ask that you would be pleased to, uh, to teach us these things and to teach us these things very well that we would be able to, to really t- to, to come alongside of our loved ones and the people of the community and and really share with them, listen, we've got a problem. You've got a problem. Um, you've really got a serious problem. Uh, I have a serious problem. We all have a really serious problem. And uh, there's a day coming. And uh, Father, we pray that you would enable us to do this in a way that is not condescending to anyone. And in a way that certainly would be um, inclusive of ourselves. Father, we uh, collectively, uh, as a human race, have a problem. We can't stand in your bar. We can't stand to your perfect justice, which will prevail. And Father, we have no right to um, look down upon another, for we stand uh, in grace alone. Father, help us. Help us to drink very deeply of this and make and fashion us into good communicators of this, Father, that, uh, Father, we would be very useful in communicating to people why they need Jesus. And, Father, we recognize that it's not up to us that people believe, but it is up to us that we share with them why they should believe. And, Father, we ask that you would transform us and, and cause us to become more effective in this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.